Hello, everybody. My name is Bill Cannon, and you recognize me from Police Off the Cuff, but this is a new series we're going to be doing. These are real crime stories. And today I have a great retired first grade detective from the NYPD, Michael O'Keefe. Besides Mike being a brilliant detective, he's also an author. He's written a novel called Shot to Pieces, A Reckoning in Brooklyn, 13 stories, which are his short stories, and uh, another book called Not Buried Deep Enough. I don't want to spend too much time on Mike's books. He'd love me to, but we're going to go right to Mike's real crime story. And he's going to tell us a story today about the triple homicide that he caught when he was a detective in the 8th squad in Brooklyn. Welcome to the show, Mike. Ah, it's a pleasure to be here, Bill. Shoot, tell us the story. <laughs> All right. Um, this, was, uh, this, this story actually is the homicide case that I built my next novel, Burnt to a Crisp Around. It was an awesome triple, um, and the victims, um, sadly enough, were uh, about as innocent as any victims I had ever had. Uh, 80-year-old father, 79-year-old mother, and uh, their son, who was 33 and had Down syndrome, oh, actually yeah. perished in the fire, even though they weren't the intended targets. But what made the case interesting and difficult, at least as an investigation, was the fact that it wasn't going to be a crime at all. I had, uh, I was coming to work for my first day tour having been off the night before. I don't remember what I was doing, but I wasn't in for the, uh, for the last four to 12. And on my way down Wilson Avenue toward the uh, 8-3 uh, precinct, it's maybe about nine o'clock in the morning, uh, eight o'clock in the morning, because it was- Mike, ge geographically, could you tell all listeners where the 8-3 is located in Brooklyn and what type of neighborhood it is? Well, at the time, because the homicide occurred uh, January 9th of 2004, it was a tough neighborhood. And it was, uh, it's in uh, Brooklyn North. It's uh, the neighborhood of Bushwick. And uh, while it's all hipsters now, it was all homicides then. <laughs> so. Just changed some of the letters after the H, you know? Yeah, pretty much. When they, I knew it was time for me to retire when they put a Starbucks up on Knickerbocker Avenue. Yeah, that's the sign. That's definitely a sign. <laughs> they didn't need me anymore. <laughs> but uh, I was on my way to work, and I see this fire scene, and there's uh, police tape around it, but there's no cops guarding it. And traffic on Wilson uh, generally gets tied up uh, at the light anyway on Gates Avenue. And I'm, I'm stopped in front of it, and I'm looking into the hallway, and I can see where the fire began. And it's clearly arson. This is from my car, looking at it briefly for a minute. I actually pull over and get a little closer just to verify I saw what I saw. It's arson. So I get back in my truck, and I head into, uh, head into the 8-3. And uh, as soon as I go in, I uh, stop at the desk and say, uh, who, who's got that arson on Wilson Avenue? And the lieutenant looks at me and goes, there's no arson. You know, the fire department said it was, uh, it was an accidental. I'm like, well, they're wrong. I'll be back. I go up to the squad. And uh, interestingly enough, a lot occurred on my day off. Yeah. <laughs> the place was a zoo. We had a bias homicide on, Star, on uh, Star Street. Okay. Uh, Polish laborer who was drunk got his head caved in with a baseball bat. And of course, if I remember correctly, the perp uh, uttered a uh, Pollock motherfucker before he hit him. So automatically it's a hate crime. 
So now I got about 30 hate crimes detectives in the office. They're always, uh, they always take up a lot of oxygen. <laughs> they take, well, exactly. Well, they waste a lot of oxygen because they're not a lot of help. Uh, but in any event, there's another homicide. It was basically a gang assassination on the border between the 8-3 and the 8-1. And so now we got a handful of homicide guys there as well. So I, and I go looking for my lieutenant, Mark Marino. No, actually, Mark wasn't the lieutenant then. Whoever the squad boss was, I go looking for him. And I'm like, what happened while I was off? He goes, yeah, what do you want to work on? You want to work on the hate crime? Or you want to work on the, uh, on the uh, gang uh, assassination? I'm like, well, I'm thinking maybe I should work on the arson. He's like, oh, no, no, we don't have an arson. I'm like, I hate to tell you, but we do. And there's three people in the burn unit right now that are waiting to die. Were you, an, were you like a volunteer fireman or something off duty? How did you know this was an arson? Well, I actually took a course from the A&E. A&E gives out courses. You know, you go to Homicide Squad, you go to... Uh, that's, that's arson and explosion, not arson entertainment. Right, arson and explosion. <laughs> Correct. Um, so I know, I know, I know what a burn pattern looks like. It's, 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 it's a distinct V pattern, and you can tell where a fire was started. Well, you can tell that an accelerant was used, right? Correct, correct. Yeah. And, and the other aspect of it is when I walked into the hallway, there's no electricity on that bottom floor. There's no heat on that bottom floor. There is, and there is no basement in the building. So there's no artificial means or accidental means to ignite a fire. It had to, somebody had to light it. And it couldn't have been an accident because the whole building was pretty much gone. Right. So the lieutenant is like trying to talk me out. Talking you down off the ledge because he doesn't Yeah, he's like, no, 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 it's, it's, it's really, we don't need another three. I'm like, I know that, but it's murder. These people are going to die. So I end up, I, I, I try and call the fire marshal who originally responded the night before. And I spoke to my partner, Joey Tallarine, who was there and stopped by the fire. And he said, can't even go into the building. It was dark. He was talking about two o'clock in the morning. It was dark. Uh, he goes, I, I don't think he even went into the building. And I had, obviously, I had other things to do, he said. So we were doing that. Right. Um, so I, I try and call this guy because they generally do the fireman tour. So they were around for a long time, but I can't get him on the phone. I'm told that he's in the building at Brooklyn isn't Fire. It, isn't it funny how cops talk about firemen? They did the fireman tour. And we all know what that is. But. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm not, you know what? I'm going to talk up a couple of firemen in this case because they did okay. an amazing job. All right. But this guy didn't. <laughs> this guy was pretty much going to exonerate a piece of shit for three murders. Yeah. Um. So I don't get in touch with it with, with him. I end up calling Austin an explosion and I tell them, listen, this is what I got. And I need a fire marshal to come out here because they're the only ones, according to the city charter, that can make arson arson. Like you mean to make the determination that is it is in fact an arson. Correct. Yes. That's okay. that's their ballywick. Okay. We don't get to make that call. I don't know why we signed, you know, gave that away to them, but we did. Um, so I speak to a detective at Austin Explosion who says, yeah, all right, everything you're describing sounds like it's in Austin, but we can't even come out because we're in the middle of a terrorism investigation. Oh. And they were. 
It was uh, one of those idiots that uh, tried to blow himself up with uh, a horse manure bomb yeah. on 42nd Street. That occurred then. So they're working on that case. Uh, but what they do is the detective I spoke to reaches out to uh, the fire marshal service as an SIU, a special investigation unit. And he gets in touch with somebody there and he explains the situation. And a half an hour later, these two fire marshals show up in the A3. But I can't even bring them into the squad because I don't even have a place to sit. So I talk to them in the hallway. They you take a ride with You went to Starbucks. <laughs> yeah, well, no, it wasn't there. You wasn't going to be there for probably another 10 years. But uh, <laughs> six years. So uh, they take a ride with me out to the scene and they walk in and right away they see what I see on the first floor. Not only do they make the call that it's arson, they boot up and start collecting the evidence for me. And they did a great job on the scene. Uh, and they said, all right, listen, it's, it's going to be awesome. We'll, uh, we'll give you a call. We'll send you the form. Uh, you know, you put it in your case file. He goes, you're good to go. He goes, right now, you know, it's, we're going to work with it with you. We're going to have a case on it. You're going to have a case on it. When these people expire, then it, you know, obviously we'll work with you on it, but it'll be all yours. It'll be homicide. It sounded good to me. Now I had a little help because I wasn't going to get any with what was going on in the 8-3. Problem was, nobody's around for me to contact the other occupants of the building. Um, So I spend the rest of the day pretty much trying to find out where they are. And uh, I don't get a whole hell of a lot of uh, help from the Red Cross who had relocated them. But fortunately, I was able to pull the uh, the aided cards. And uh, a lot of them had cell phone numbers on. So now I'm starting to talk to witnesses. And interestingly enough, uh, not a lot of people have much to say. They're all trying to point me in the direction of one occupant of the building, but they won't say why. And she's a 19-year-old girl. Um, they said she'll know about it. Like, well, why will she know about it? I'm like, well, I just talked to her. So now I can't find her. <laughs> so I know who I'm looking for. And uh, we end up doing, when the, when, when the uh, fire marshals get done processing the evidence, you know, they come back and we go out and we start canvassing. And they're coming up, uh, they're hitting the same wall of non-cooperation that I am. And it's seems a little strange. I don't understand why nobody wants to talk when we got two elderly and a, and a disabled kid who died in this thing. I end up finding out. Uh, but not that day. With nothing else to do, I hit the computers. And the only thing close to a complaint that ever came out of that residence was a DIR, a domestic incident report between the girl and her ex about a year before. And uh, for whatever reason, uh, well, I know the reason because he wasn't arrested at that address, but I ended up finding the arrest report for that assault. It was a domestic violence assault. So now I have someone uh, of interest because he's listed as living there, but he wasn't among, you know, among the displaced residents after the fact. Right. And people are telling me I need to talk to this girl. 
This is probably why. But I don't know that yet. I just suspect it. Uh, so now I have to start coming up with leads. And the canvas was already, didn't come up with anything on the canvas yet. And at the time, the, the only detective working on it is me. It's me and the two fire marshals. So you didn't get much help because uh, basically everyone else was assigned to something. Well, they were busy. You know, it's, you know, who expects five people to die in, uh, in you know, a six-hour period? Right. It's, you know, that would, uh, that would stretch the manpower of any detective squad. But uh, interestingly enough, I try and reach out now to the family because it's on, it's, it's on the aided card, the notifications. I reach out to the family of the victims. And they're not calling me back. And it seems like something that, you know, you'd be interested in speaking to the police about. So right. I'm getting a weird feeling about it. Um, Mike, up, can I, Mike, can I just stop you for one second? Sure. The, um, what Mike described before was that he did a complaint check on the building. And that's uh, that computer check has to deal with any complaints that were made or any arrests made in the building, you pull that up in the computer and it is, is a uh, huge investigative aid. Uh, yeah. Almost any investigation. Mm -hmm. I just want to explain that to our audience. <laughs> so the uh, following day, I, now it's a big deal. Everybody is talking about this fire because these people are, uh, I mean, it's being reported on the news they're going to uh, they're going to perish. That's the shape that they're in. Uh, obviously, they can't speak to me. They're unconscious. They're intubated. It's pretty much the family is on a uh, on a death watch. Um, so I reach out. The only thing I can think of. All right, it's a media event. Let's see if the deputy commissioner of public information, who handles all of the uh, Anything having to do with the police department that ends up in the media, they have all the all the written uh, work on it. They have all the all the TV and media coverage. I'm thinking that perhaps if uh, at the scene, if I get the video, maybe I can spot people on the street that I know that I can go specifically talk to. The problem is it wasn't a crime yet, so DCPI had nothing on the day of the fire. Deputy Commissioner of Public Information. Correct. They had nothing. It wasn't a crime. And uh, at this point now, uh, I speak to Georgie Farback, who uh, was first grade detective in the homicide squad. And he's going to catch this case with me when these people die. And he's there actually on the bias crime. And uh, he's getting frustrated with that, uh, largely because of all the outside interference. And uh, he comes over, he goes, what are you working on? And I give him the whole story. He goes, oh, good, I'm up. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I said, this is, this is what I have. This is what I've done. A DCPI was a, was a waste of my time. They don't have anything. And he goes, well, the fire department, I think, has something similar to DCPI. You want to check with them? I'm like, all right, I don't know anything about it. So I called one of the fire marshals. And uh, he's like, yeah, we got to, it's, you know, they're like up a, publicity on they go to all the fires and you know we're on the news pretty much the news is there quicker than we are yep so, okay so uh i let them go deal with their uh 
their public public information department. I'm not quite sure what they call. I don't remember what they call it actually. Mm-hmm. But they are coming back with a thumb drive for me, and it's like 15 pieces of video from right when the fire was burning. So I'm able to upload that into my computer and look at it, and I'm seeing about 16 people I know. I got to talk to him. 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 So now they can't deny that they were out there during this fire. Well, they were there. What I was looking to do at this point is I'm going to talk to them, and I don't have any reason to believe that they're going to lie to me about, you know, being on the street where they live to watch a fire burn. Right. What I want to find out is when you got there, who else was there? And now I got pictures of other people that I know. And I start working backwards to get to someone who was actually there before the fire truck showed up. Right. The only problem is this guy is a drug dealer and he's not going to tell me anything. He's not giving anybody up, but I know he was there. So it's a matter of having to motivate him. (laughs) Speak to me. And the police department loves that word leverage. They love the word leverage. Right? Yeah, I needed leverage on him. Uh, I had a little leverage. He was on life parole. Yeah. And then the other thing that uh, led me to believe that I was going to get more leverage on him was he was clearly smoking his own drugs. So this guy is a full-blown crackhead. Yeah. Which is actually not, doesn't show real good business acumen for a drug dealer getting high on your own supply, but that's another matter entirely. It's the old rule, never get high on your own supply, right? Get high on your own supply. (laughs) Mike, I'm going to actually stop you right here. Okay. This is is fascinating. This is a great case. And you're going to have to come back and we're going to do a couple more episodes and tell this whole story, right? Absolutely. Okay. I'm, I'm Bill Cannon. This is the first episode of Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime. And our guest today has been first retired first grade NYPD detective Michael O'Keefe. We're gonna come back. This is gonna be uh, it's gonna be done like once a week. These real crime stories, but Mike's gonna come back and finish this story of uh, this triple homicide. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure, Bill. It was a lot of fun reminiscing. You promised to come back, right? I'll be back next All right. week. All right, Mike. Great talking to you. You too.